Welcome to Across Acoustics, the official podcast of the Acoustical Society of America's Publications Office. On this podcast, we will highlight research from our four publications. I'm your host, Kat Setzer, Editorial Associate for the ASA. Today, we'll be talking to Aravindan Joseph Benjamin and Kai Seidenberg about their recent article exploring level and spectrum-based music mixing transform for hearing-impaired listeners, which appeared in the August 2023 issue of Jazza. Thank you both for taking the time to speak with me today. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having us, Kat. Thank you very much. Uh... So first, tell us a bit about your research backgrounds. Yeah, I come from an electronic and electrical engineering background. I have a master's degree in electronic media technology from the Technical University of Ilmenau. Here, my focus was on audio signal processing, psychoacoustics, and virtual room acoustics. I'm currently working in the music perception and processing lab headed by Kai. Yeah, and I have a math and music background originally. And in my lab, we mostly work on the psychoacoustics of music. So how do sound waves in the ear transform into a sense of melody, timbre, emotion, and the like. And for listeners, we've actually had Kai on here before. If you would like to hear about some of his other research, you can listen to his episode about lead vocal levels in music, which aired in April, I think. But so let's get on to this episode here. So what is multi-track mixing? Uh, multi-track mixing is quite an elaborate process where separate recordings that make up a song or the final mix, which is often referred to as the mix down, is modified and combined by a trained mixing engineer. This is done to make the so-called mix down more coherent and enjoyable to the listener or the consumer. The mixing engineer, while making the mix down coherent, should also make sure that each instrument and vocals in the mix down is clearly audible. Okay. So then how does automated mixing work? Automated mixing is a manner in which we computationally mimic the involvement of the mixing engineer through mathematical modeling, or machine learning, for example, or mathematical methods. But these methods require a priori information, which are generally settings used by expert engineers in the past on mixes that were already created. These settings are also referred to as the best practices in mixing. And these best practices can be used to train these mathematical models to create new mixes from scratch. Okay. What are situations that you would use automated mixing in compared to like regular mixing? So I think automated mixing is very handy if you want to have a very quick first approximation of a feasible mix. Like if you are recording something and then you want to have a first shot at a mix, which sounds better than a raw mix, which is obviously not a fine-tuned mix, or not a very artistically distinct mix, then automatic mixing might be a very useful tool. Okay, so it kind of gives you an, a general idea of what it will sound like, and then you can the audio engineer would individually tweak things to make it specifically what you would want it to sound like. So then why is masking a concern in multi-track mixing, and how is it typically handled for normal hearing listeners? Yeah, we're speaking of masking when the presence of one sound renders another sound inaudible and so to to allow a comparison and vision masking is pretty clear i guess when i hold my hand in front of an object i can't see the object because light just doesn't get through and hearing masking is a bit more tricky because sound waves don't get blocked but superimpose in the air and then masking happens due to the mechanics of the cochlea so the inner ear where not all frequency components of a sound get represented in the auditory nerve. 
but only the most dominant components get through, so to say. So that's masking in a nutshell. And masking happens in multi-track music all the time because several tracks obviously overlap in time and frequency. And sometimes masking is desired because producers want to have a certain degree of blend between a selection of tracks. Say if you if you have a brass section, you want to have a certain degree of cohesiveness and blend between the different instruments of, of that section. And then blend obviously involves partial masking. In other situations, it's valuable to be able to hear out individual components from a mix, which yields a sense of clarity of the mix. And in this case, masking is unwanted. And we know that masking is more severe for hearing impaired listeners compared to normal hearing listeners. So it, it should be of concern when we talk about adjusting mixes for hearing impaired listeners. So what was known prior to this study about mixing preferences for listeners with hearing impairment? So I would say not so much. Uh, there has been quite some work on cochlear implant listeners, but for people with, say, a moderate degree of hearing loss, which are no cochlear implant candidates, we don't know much about their preferences. So with this study, we tried to give a starting point for this. Okay. So what was the goal of this study? The goals were straightforward. We wanted to explore the mixing preferences of hearing impaired listeners by simply comparing their preferences with those of normal hearing listeners. And we wanted to do this in a setting with and without hearing aids and in a musical setting which is realistic, so using naturalistic uh, music mixes. And then this would allow us to see whether there are potential differences along fairly basic mixing dimensions that could be considered when adjusting mixes for hearing impaired listeners in the future. Okay, got it. So what mixing effects did you look at in this study? Uh, we looked at three mixing effects in this study. The first one was a level-based effect called the lead-to-accompaniment ratio. Here, to bring about changes, the overall level of the lead vocal tracks alone was changed. All the other tracks in the mix we refer to in this study as the accompaniment remained unchanged in the process. We did this to preserve the relative levels of these accompanying tracks. The measure of the lead to accompaniment ratio, or LA, we refer to in this study, can be negative, zero, or positive. To provide a bit of perspective, an infinitely positive lead to accompaniment ratio will render only the lead vocals in the mix audible. Conversely, an infinitely negative lead to accompaniment ratio will render only the accompaniment audible. The next audio effect was the spectral balance, which was a frequency domain-based effect. Here, we balance the energy weightings of the overall mix about 1 kHz. With this effect, we can change the energy weighting such that it sounds boomy on one side of our range and shrill on the other side of our range. So this effect effectively changes from a low-pass to a high-pass filter, essentially. So to sort of elaborate what a low-pass or a high-pass filter is, a low-pass filter would mean that we have a cutoff frequency, we allow all frequencies below that to pass by and sort of attenuate frequencies above that. And vice versa, it's a high-pass filtering where we attenuate low frequencies and pass high frequencies by. So it's in a way akin to filtering that we would do on a day-to-day -day basis. And last but not least, uh, we have what we call the EQ transform, which is also a spectral effect. Here, we aim at exaggerating or downplaying the EQ utilization, or what we call EQing, applied on the tracks by the mixing engineer. And you may wonder what equalization is. So equalization is inadvertently a ploy of the mixing engineer to sort of color the audio signal in the frequency domain. So he or she does that by 
segregating an audio signal into individual, say, octave bands or smaller third octave bands and providing different energies or different weightings at different octave bands, therefore sort of coloring the audio signal in question. So the EQ transform that we talked about in this study, we do this by linearly extrapolating between a reference spectrum and the spectra of each individual track bearing the equalization applied by the mixing engineer. This so-called reference spectrum that we talked about was an ensemble average spectrum of commonly occurring tracks in the open source databases that we chose. These included lead vocals, bass guitar, drums, guitar, piano, percussion instruments, and synth instruments. This EQ transform was measured as a percentage of the equalization applied by the mixing engineer. So to provide a bit of perspective, a 100% EQ transform setting would mean that the participant preferred the equalization applied by the mixing engineer as it were, without any changes. Anything above 100% would mean that the participant preferred to exaggerate the equalization applied by the engineer. Anything below that would simply reducing the equalization applied by the engineer, sort of making the overall spectrum of the audio signal to which the equalization was applied to more flat. I would like to add that interestingly, by altering the equalization of the tracks by applying our EQ transform, significant changes to the frequency domain sparsity could be shown. We did so by quantitatively measuring the sparsity using what we call the Guinea coefficient or index. This index has been proven time and time again to be more robust than most available mathematical measures of sparsity in previous studies. What is sparsity? Yeah, sparsity is, say, for example, the distribution of energies over frequencies, for example, when we talk about spectral sparsity. This would be akin to wealth distribution, for example. Say in a given nation, there would be a sparse distribution of wealth if only 2% of the population had, say, 99% of the wealth, and a, a denser distribution if Everybody was equally rich and they had the same amount. So what was the setup of the first experiment? Yeah, we used a standard two-speaker setup in a quiet room. So it's a generic hi-fi setup that we would have in a living room environment, for example. And the speakers were 90 degrees apart from one another and placed two meters away from the participant. I would like to add that the overall playback level of the loudspeakers that we used were 80 decibels elevated at the participant position. The participant could alter the audio effects that we discussed using what we called an ungraduated dial, which means that uh, there were no sort of markings to indicate where the dial should be and whatnot. So it was just a completely blank dial. So the participant just had to sort of rotate it with the mouse on a standalone computer. And as they rotated this virtual dial, uh, the audio effects would change in real time. Okay, got it. So what did you end up finding with regard to listening preferences among the three groups in the first experiment? So we had the normal hearing or the participants who did not have hearing impairment. So compared to these participants, hearing impaired participants who used hearing aids or bilateral hearing aids had elevated lead vocal level preferences. So the ones who were hearing aid users preferred louder lead vocals as compared to normal hearing participants. But these preferences, the lead vocal level preferences, were significantly varied for hearing impaired listeners without hearing aids. I would also like to add that there were large individual differences in the spectral balance preferences uh, among the normal hearing participants. So there was a diverse range of preferences among the normal hearing participants compared to the other two who were the hearing impaired, who did not use hearing aids, and the ones who did use hearing aids. Furthermore, for the spectral balance part, the hearing impaired participants with hearing aids preferred mixes without any changes to the spectral balance. So effectively, they, they set the spectral balance preferences to zero. However, 
Those who did not use hearing ears preferred higher energy ratings and frequencies above one kilohertz in the mixes presented. So they sort of favored amplifying high frequencies. As for the EQ transform preferences, all three groups that we studied in the first experiment preferred spectrally denser mixes by way of preferring EQ transforms settings below 100%. So the second experiment was essentially the same setup, but you were looking specifically at hearing impaired listeners with and without hearing aids. How did this experiment differ from the first one? So it's just the, the sample of participant was more bespoke as compared to the first experiment where we targeted a controlled group of hearing impaired participants who were certainly bilateral hearing aid users. This was so that we could assess the preferences with and without their hearing aids. Okay, got it. So what did you end up finding with regards to the relationship between mixing effect preferences and the level of hearing loss? Yeah, so when we looked across all subjects from our two experiments, we had quite a range of hearing loss covered. So actually from 0 dB to 60 dB hearing loss in terms of pure tone averages of hearing thresholds. And when we then correlated the degree of hearing loss with the LAR preferences, so the loudness of the vocals, we saw that the stronger the hearing loss, the more the participants preferred louder vocals. And this is very similar to the literature on cochlear implants that we've mentioned before. We also saw that with higher levels of hearing loss, people tended to have higher preference for sparser mixes, which potentially rules out some of the masking we also have talked about earlier. Okay, interesting. What else did you find out about the mixing effect preferences of listeners with hearing impairment? Yeah, so Arvindan said earlier that in experiment two, we just looked at people with hearing aids and then we had them wear their hearing aids in one session and don't wear their hearing aids in another session. And there, so we could directly compare results from these two sessions. And here we saw that hearing aids compensate for their hearing loss uh, when listening to music to a certain extent. So with hearing aids, we saw that lower low vocal levels were preferred as well as less sparsity. And without hearing aids, higher vocal levels were preferred and more sparsity was preferred. So we saw that the type of amplification through the hearing aid is really critical to consider as well in this picture. We can't just say hearing impaired, yes, no. We really need to be uh, looking also at the whole acoustic chain, of course, involving hearing aids. It's important to emphasize this because other studies show that hearing aids don't improve certain aspects of music perception. So here we found if we look at sound preferences for music mixes, there is a considerable difference depending on whether people use hearing aids or don't use hearing aids. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And this is using a loudspeaker. So I imagine I've known people with hearing aids who use their hearing aids to listen to music now since they're used kind of like Bluetooth speakers in a way. Would that affect, you think, what their preferences on mixing are? Yeah, I, I, I think so. It really depends whether you're listening via loudspeakers or streaming to the hearing aid directly. I think there are also quite a few degrees of freedom that we can use in the future to improve music processing for hearing impaired listeners. Yeah. So actually, that leads to our next question. What are your future research plans? Yeah, we have quite quite many plans. Uh, we're currently exploring the other side of the coin of this whole topic, namely a performance-based task. So in the study we were talking about, we look at preference, but of course, one could also look at performance. So um, looking into whether people 
can hear out individual components from a mix or not. So there we will see whether subjective preference and objective performance are closely or only loosely related. So that's one interesting path that we're currently exploring. Aravinda, do you want to add something to that on future research? Uh, for future research, I would also like to add that we would like to consider a synergy of effects. So here we isolated each individual effects and then considered their preferences separately. But we would like to see what the preferences are if two effects were considered together. For example, an EQ transform of 150%, how would it fare if the participant had the degrees of freedom to change two effects at once, for example? Well, that sounds all very exciting. I'm sure a lot of people will benefit from the research and how it will increase accessibility of music to a wider variety of listeners. I wish you the best in your future research. And thank you again for chatting with me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you for tuning into Across Acoustics. If you'd like to hear more interviews from our authors about their research, please subscribe and find us on your preferred podcast platform.